Hey everybody, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. That's the number one song of 1976, Silly Love Songs by Wings. Not sure if that is in my guest today's expansive vinyl collection or not, but it seems only fitting because we're going to be talking a lot about 1976 today. My guest is Dan Epstein, and his recent book, Stars and Strikes, is about not only baseball in 1976, but America in 1976. Just a terrific, terrific book. And I think that it's time to jump right in and start talking about 1970s baseball with a man that I consider to be the authority on the subject, Mr. Dan Epstein. So here we are, recording live and in person from Chateau Epstein, uh, the man, I call him the godfather of 1970s baseball. He's the author of Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funky Ride Through Baseball in America in the Swing in 70s. And now, out in paperback, Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of 76, Mr. Dan Epstein. Welcome. Thank you, Ricky. Nice to be here. Actually, well, nice to have you here, as the case may be. <laughs> as the case may be, and I would like to point out, uh, I know many of my followers know Dan's work very well. Uh, many of you own his books. Uh, Dan serving me water very graciously in a Mark Fidrich glass. It's part of a Sanders uh, Tiger's glass set that my wife gave me for Christmas a couple of years ago. I, I am drinking from a rusty Staub glass. Uh, Aurelio Rodriguez is on deck, and unfortunately, Ben Ogilvie is in the trash because uh, one of my cats uh, knocked that glass over. That is, that's tragic. It is, it is. Honestly. But, you know, I mean, it's just stuff in the end. All right, well, Dan, i got to tell you, I, you've been a tremendous inspiration to my to myself and getting started with this Twitter account and my uh, burgeoning, I hope, uh, career in writing books. Uh, and I know that many of my followers uh, have been aware of your work for a good number of years now. What I would really like to know is how did you make the move into writing about baseball and what was the genesis of Big Hair and Plastic Grass? Well, there's a, there were a couple things at work. One was that, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s. I fell in love with baseball in 1976. Um, and, and so that era speaks uh, more strongly to me than any other era of baseball history. And uh, about sometime in the late 90s, I was really getting back into baseball after many years away. And uh, I, I was really getting into reading baseball history and was frustrated at the inability, my inability to find a book on the 70s that really kind of talked about why, you know, you know th there were books that talked about crazy things that went on in the 70s, but didn't really talk about why, kind of treated it as an aberration. I mean, even like the Ken Burns baseball documentary, it's sort of like uh, the 70s, Hank Aaron hits the home run, Pete Rose, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, gets, gets, uh, gets the hits, uh, 75 World Series, and we're moving on. You know, it's 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 just like it's too weird of a period to fit in with the kind of sepia tone, all that is good and great about America as reflected in baseball sort of uh, viewpoint. So um, I was, you know, I, I was a, already a professional writer. Uh, I had written a book um, 
That sound was my cat, Otis, jumping up on my shoulder. Um, I, I had written a book called 20th Century Pop Culture, which was kind of a year-by-year look at fads and trends in, in America, really mostly since World War II. And I've, I've really, the book didn't come out very well for various reasons, but uh, I really love the process of researching uh, the book, which was something that I never had experienced before and didn't know that I enjoyed as much as I did. So I thought, you know what, it would be great to go back and research a book on baseball in the 1970s. And, you know, I should just write this because nobody else is clearly seeing it the way I'm seeing it. So um, I really started, I, I think it was like February 2000 that I really started making notes for the book. And uh, the book Big Hair and Plastic Grass didn't actually come out until uh, spring of 2010. So it was a, I, I won't say I worked on it for 10 years, but it was a 10 year on and off process, um, figuring out how to write the proposal, finding an agent, getting you know, getting people to pay attention, you know, getting publishers interested in it. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many publishers we went to who were like, well, the 70s are a long time ago. Does anybody, you know, like, who's going to care about baseball then? You know, or they'd be like, oh, yeah, I love 70s baseball. Don Mattingly. And it's like, no, that's the <laughs> 80s. You know, just like, like, so it became increasingly clear to me, like, how ignorant people were about this era and you know it became more and more of a crusade to kind of like god damn it we're gonna you know we're gonna talk about the 70s and 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 you know and and the thing is like yeah who's gonna care about it well guys in their you know guys in their 40s and 50s who you know last i heard were, were still the biggest demographic in terms of actually buying books <laughs> right so uh so uh, and then there was a whole long process. We don't have to get into it, but but I, uh, the first publisher I went to, um, uh, who 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 picked it up, wound up pushing it back for a year for various reasons, and then they uh, they wound up slashing sixty percent of their forthcoming releases for, because of the economy, and I, you know, so my book was one of them. And then I, in in the end, that was a good thing because. Uh, the publisher who shall not be named. Uh, I've seen what they've done with baseball books since. And also I found out when they cut Big Hair and Plastic Grass that they were going to, without telling me, were going to change the title to Bad Hair, Polyester, and All Kinds of Grass. Which is just oh, like, no. you fucking morons. <laughs> so I'm really glad it all worked out how it did. I also feel like when Big Hair and Plastic Grass came out. It was 2010. Um, Facebook was really starting to, you know, really take off, but hadn't become completely uh, glutted with people pushing their stuff. So I was able to do set up this big hair and plastic grass uh, page on Facebook to promote the book, which. Uh, wound up, I think, doing a lot more to promote the book than St. Martin's ever did for it. Uh, but it was a good thing, and, and I actually made a lot of good friends through that. Uh, um, and uh, when I would do readings in other parts of the country, people would come because they knew me from the page, and they knew what the book was about from the page. And So I think, like, uh, as frustrating as the whole process was, uh, the timing wound up being good in the end and and uh and then that led the way to stars and strikes um 
which I don't, do you want me to get into that now or? or yeah, absolutely. Go um, on. We can, we can kind of bounce back and okay, forth between cool. the two books. Uh, so Stars and Strikes is specifically about the 1976 season, whereas Big Hair and Plastic Grass was about the entire decade of the 70s. And I really felt while writing Big Hair and Plastic Grass that 76 was a really unsung year in terms of its importance in baseball history. And that, you know, the reason I've always, I've long suspected that, like, it's been underrated is because the World Series was such a dog. You know, it was like red, Big Red Machine versus New York Yankees. It's it's Godzilla versus Bambi. It's it's <laughs> it's not interesting on any level, uh, really, unless you're a Reds fan. And so, you know, especially coming right after the 1975 World Series, which is, you know, canonized to this day. It's it's gonna you know and years are so often characterized by what happens in the World Series, so um, but while writing the chapter for Big Hair and Plastic Grass, the '76 chapter, it's like I realized there was all kinds of stuff beyond the World Series, beyond uh, Chris Chambliss's home run, beyond Mark Fidrich's you know amazing season, that that really you know it needed more than twenty to twenty five pages to really do the season justice. You know everything, Bill Vec coming back to buy the White Sox and all the crazy shit that went down as a result of that. Charlie Finley, you know realizing what the you know the end of the reserve clause is going to mean for the Oakland A's and his dynasty, and him just like you know frantically trying to trade off and sell off players to to you know get something uh in the bank before they all walk at the end of the 76 season uh the yankees kind of returning to glory after you know over a decade in the wilderness and then all you know that the start of that whole steinbrenner billy martin uh do-si-do uh the um uh Ted Turner buys the Atlanta Braves at the beginning of the 76 season and pretty much pulls the same kind of stuff that Bill Veck is pulling in Chicago. Uh, but but un- unlike Veck, Turner has money. So he can act, you know, so he's signing Andy Messersmith and he's like really, you know, he, he actually starts, uh, it takes him a while, but he puts, he starts putting a team together that, you know, by the early 80s will actually be competitive. Um, unlike, you know, Vec, who you know, has the good year in 77 with the uh, Southside Hitmen, the Renta players like Richie Zisk and Oscar Gamble. Uh, but, you know, it, you know he, he, the writing is already on the wall for owners like Vec and Finley who have money, but not an endless supply of it. You know, and the, you see all these guys just get chased out by, uh, by, the, by the early mid-80s. Um, you know, all all kinds of stuff with, you know, sort of like side characters that, you know, I would have had no room to fit into Big Hair and Plastic Grass. I mean, one of my favorite stories that's in Stars and Strikes is the story of Tommy Davis, who was a great player in the 60s and had kind of been puttering along as a uh, uh, designated hitter for the last, you know, for a couple of years in the mid-70s and retired uh, to take a gig in uh, the promotions department of Casablanca Records, which is like <laughs> one of the quintessential record labels of the 70s. So he's there, like working with Parliament Funkadelic, and then the angels come calling and say, hey man, would you, like, we really need a bat. Would you, you know, put on a uniform? So, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's the only player in history to go from a promotions department of a record label uh, to a major league diamond. <laughs> uh, and stuff like, um, oh, uh, you know whether it's Ted Turner putting the 
he's putting his players' nicknames on the back of the uniforms to uh, obviously Bill Veck with the shorts, uh, which the White Sox wore for three games. Uh, Rick Monday saving the flag at Dodger Stadium. Um, And then all sorts of, you know, I I feel like the bicentennial was a really interesting time in American history. And I was a 10-year-old kid, and to live all that was really cool and interesting and weird and so you know to to have that as the backdrop for the you know this essentially you know the 200th anniversary of you know america's independence and the american revolution set against this year where the players are fighting for their independence and i mean that sounds cheesy but it's really that's what happened (laughs) it's true so uh so i just thought like this is this this is a book that needs to be written and thankfully big hair did well enough that you know saint martin's went okay we'll do we'll do this and uh you know, and I, and I hope that it's made a difference in terms of how people see uh, what happened in 1976. I I think there's no question about it. If you if you haven't read this book, I have the I have the hardcover edition Good myself. Uh, but if you haven't read this book, it's just out in paperback. I think as of last uh, week, yeah, February 9th. Uh, which ironically, or um, not ironically, it came out in paperback on Bill Veck's birthday. So uh, I take that as a very good sign. That is a good omen, if there ever was one. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't read this, uh, if you enjoyed Big Hair and Plastic Grass, this is the uh, this is going to be a natural for you. You're going to love this as well. If you haven't read either one of them, what are you waiting for? Get out to a bookstore, get on Amazon, (laughs) Barnes & Noble. Because if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to dig these books. This is up your alley. I can can tell you that. You know, I think think, um, uh, the important thing, too, about these books that, that people should realize going in is, like, I'm not a big stats guy. I mean, I, I dig them. I look at them every day. I, I, I mean, and I'm into the advanced analytics and all that stuff. But what really interests me about baseball and baseball history is the stories, is the characters, is the is is the the events that were set in motion by other events, um, and that's what these books are about. If you're if you're if you're looking for advanced statistical analysis how does you know how does Gary Maddox stack up against Mike Trout that that this is not the book for you but if you want to learn about you know if if you want to know about uh Gary Maddox growing his beard because his face had been burned by uh you know by Agent Orange or some other similar chemical when he was serving in Vietnam then you know Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes are the books for you so Let's uh, talk about the way that the 70s, in terms of baseball, have been perceived by the mainstream uh, media. Uh, You were saying earlier that you felt like a lot of the books about the 1970s were kind of almost treating the things that happened in that decade as being weird or oddly embarrassing in a way. or, or Or even the books that were affectionate toward the 70s, what few there may have been. We're still viewing it almost as though it were a guilty pleasure of right. some sort. Right, like you know, like oh, the the colorful uniforms, and you know, and I, and I admit that I, like I I was guilty of feeling, you know, with the uniforms, for example. Like, I mean, I think there was a time where I would have, you know, and uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, like, like the Houston Astros or the San Diego Padres uniforms of the seventies, like. You know, they were garish, 
And there was definitely a time in my life where I was like, oh, God, like, like what, you know, how, how, what a what a travesty. But I really like I, I love it all now. I love it. I, you know, I, I just yes, I think the lettering on the late 70s Padres jerseys look like um, uh, look like they went down to the mall and got them <laughs> ironed on. Uh, but. I, 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 it's just, it's so part of the era, you know, it's, it's, it's inseparable. You can't, you know, you can't have, you know, the, the Astros early seventies uniforms were cool, but like you can't have the Astros in the seventies without the tequila sunrise stripes. Impossible. And I remember when I was a kid, like watching 1976 was the first year I watched the all-star game. And I watched it on my grandparents' TV, which was a color television, which was a big deal because, you know, we still had a black and white TV at, at my dad's house, at my mom's house. And so it's like, wow, to see all these uniforms in color, all these different uniforms together was such a thrill. And I just, I can still picture in my mind, like, when the, you know, the camera's panning along the NL squad and they go past Cesar Cedeno. <laughs> it was just like, whoa, whoa, look at that. So I, I I think it's yeah it's 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 you know and and here's the other thing like like there was a lot of groovy stuff to the seventies but it was not all afros and disco balls and stack heels and you know and and uh, you know pimp suits or what have you I mean it it was a really weird time to be alive in America. And it was a weird time to be a kid. And there was, there was so, you know, you're dealing with the fallout of the whole, you know, the, the counterculture revolution in the late sixties. You're, you know, I mean, to me, the whole Mike Kekich, Fritz, Fritz Peterson wife swapping thing, like that is, that's America in that time. That is when like people have, you know, like the, all these, these ideas that have been set in stone about like how you conduct yourself in life and in marriage and in love and all this stuff, like that kind of goes out the window in the sixties for, you know, the people on sort of the cutting edge of society. But by the seventies, that's, you know, you know, like, like a cloud from Fukushima that is <laughs> drifted into, yes. into American mainstream culture. And it's same with like the hair and it's same with the music and it's all. And, and so Everybody in the mainstream who's sort of like, and, and who's never moved from the mainstream, now these ideas are coming to them. They're not seeking them out. These ideas are coming to them through, you know, through magazines, uh, music, whatever. And now it's like, oh, love the one you're with. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I should do that. And and then that causes a whole kind of fallout of its own. And, you know, and I think, you know, for most of us who were kids in the seventies, like we all saw our parents go, you know, not necessarily go through wife swapping, but like, <laughs> you know, all kind of deal with this, this, uh, like all of a sudden there was no terra firma anymore and they're trying to get their footing. And, and so like, like that, that to me, like you need to talk about that sort of stuff when you talk about the seventies, not just like oh, it was wacky and like, can you believe Oscar Gamble's afro? You know, I mean, that stuff is cool, but it's like there was so you know, but like there's the whole black pride aspect of of the afro, which you know, all these got these black players are wearing afros because that's you know, like like ten years earlier, that was a really radical thing to do to 
you know, blow your hair out like that. And then by the 70s, it becomes more mainstream, but it's still like this expression of pride, and it's still freaking out white people. I mean, Oscar Gamble was widely perceived by guys in the, you know, the old white guys who were baseball journalists as being like a troublemaker, you know, and in reality, he was just this mellow dude, great teammate, uh, you know, hard player, but he had an afro. So to them, that was like, oh, he's militant. He's, you know, he's a Black Panther. So, like, all this stuff needs to be talked about in the context of, you know, of the greater societal upheaval of the 60s and 70s. And, and, and uh, uh, so, so that, so, uh, you know, again, I hope that, like, my books help people understand that, that it just, like, you know, it wasn't like a, just like a Will Ferrell movie. <laughs> right. Right, no, and you're right. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm a sociologist. You were, we were talking earlier before the podcast that your parents were sociologists, right. and, and in certain uh, ways, I really see that come through in your writing. It's not all just about, hey, this was zany, this was goofy, or whatever. Right. You're making a, a more important points. I mean, it's a very entertaining book, but you're looking at America. Because the title America is in the title of both of right. these books. Okay, it's not just baseball; it's baseball within the larger context. Right. And absolutely. And let's go back to Kekich and Fritz Peterson right. for a moment, because that's one of my favorite uh, things about the seventies. And I want to ask you in a few <laughs> minutes, like some of the some of your personal favorite moments sure. that, that you that you researched and wrote about in these books. But uh, poor Mike Kekich. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> he didn't come out of that one too well. He didn't come well, out of that. Well, you know, it's just like baseball. There are good trades and there are bad trades, or there are trades that work out well for one team and not so well for another. <laughs> and it worked out very well for Fritz Peterson, and I believe he's still with uh, uh, Mike Kekic's uh, former wife to this day. And uh, uh, Kekic and Peterson's wife, uh, I, I think... Um, you know, it didn't last that long, and I think there was a, there was a lot of bitterness there because I think there was, you know, th- there had been some talk that like, well, if this doesn't work out, we can switch back, and <laughs> uh, but there no, was no take no take no backs back, as far as the, the Petersons were concerned, and and geez, like the kids, like I, I you know, again, like I'm, I'm I think of all this, you know, from the experience of being a kid back then and seeing the, you know, weird stuff that my parents and their friends were dealing with. And, you know, it seemed like, like for a while there in the seventies, like every time I would go with my parents to one of their friends' house, they were a, in the throes of a breakup, uh, and B, uh, Carol King's tapestry was on the turntable. <laughs> so like, it's you know, late. it's like the ultimate divorce <laughs> rock album. So the, uh, so yeah, so, so it's, it's, that's definitely, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how that, how that panned out. And, and, but again, like that is a classic seventies outcome, just like, <laughs> you know, a, a friend of mine, uh, a writer named Peter Schilling, who's, who's a great writer, um, and, and was, was very kind about with stars and strikes. Uh, he was the person I gave the manuscript to first before I turned it in saying, just like, can you look at this and like, tell me if I'm, you know, <laughs> am I high? Like, is, is this working out? And, and he, he gave me this great compliment. He said, like the way you write about the world series in 1976, it plays out like a, like a drama from 1976 where there isn't the happy ending. And, 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 and that there is so much, you know, so much of what I remember about watching movies in the seventies and when I go back and watch them now, you know, it's still the same. It's like, there are not the neat 
tie-ups. They're not the they're not happy endings. There's not the like snappy like wait for you know the sequel uh, type of type of endings. And and the Peterson Kekic swap. I mean, supposedly there's going to be a movie made about that, but um, but it's really. Like that's a classic '70s ending. It works out for some people, doesn't work out for others. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping that that movie gets made. I think that uh, Fritz Peterson is a consultant, right, on the project. But Kekic, not surprisingly, uh, he's pretty he's pretty uh, mute right. on the topic, and, right? And and I don't think they can make it without his his uh, signing off on it. And and I mean, it's been in the work. This is how long it's that movie has been in the works. I when I was pitching Big Hair and Plastic Grass as a book, I used that I used the the talk that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were working on a movie about uh, Kekich Peterson in my proposal to show pe- to show publishers that people ca- still care about what happened in the seventies and like look Matt Damon and Ben Affleck care about this so you should too. <laughs> well, see the, the beautiful thing about your work is whenever I do get a book to the publisher, all I have to point out is Dan Epstein. <laughs> so, right. Those you, books sold. Yeah, you just blazed a trail. <laughs> I didn't, it, so that makes it nice. Uh, but in terms of, let's go back to big hair for a second and then we'll, and then we'll come to stars and strikes. Cause I think that was a stars and strikes is a, is a different sort of endeavor because yeah. you're, you're digging very deeply into a, into a more narrow right. focus. And big hair is definitely more of a, uh, what do you call it? A survey. Yes. It's more of a survey. And then, and then stars and strikes is like taking the, uh, 300 level. Right. course. And for, for big hair, what were some of the things that as you were doing your research and as you were sitting down to think about what you were going to include in the book were things that you either found out uh, that uh, along the way that you were really excited about and you thought, okay, this has got to go in the book or things that from Jump Street you thought, if I'm going to write a book about 70s baseball, this has to go in the book. Well, the Doc Ellis Celestino hitter was, was, I think, that was number one. Like, that had to go in there because that was not mentioned in any of the 70s baseball books that I had read up to that point. And, and if if they had been mentioned, uh, it was surely with a, you know, oh, this, you know, what, what a shameful thing that was. Like, I think that's the greatest athletic feat in, in history. I think, like, to, I mean, you know, I I don't know about you, but I can testify from personal experience that doing anything on acid, <laughs> other, uh, other than sitting there and you know, you know, maybe listening to music is is not easy. So so to, I, I and and on top of that, I feel like if if I you know if if I in anything in my life had had dosed myself with acid and gotten my days mixed up and realized like I'm supposed to go do something, I would have done anything possible to get out of it. I would have called in sick, what have you. Doc Ellis, like, like, and, and this just speaks to his competitive fire. Like it wasn't a matter of like, how do I get out of this? It was, how do I do this? How do I how do I still get the job done? How do I win, even though like I'm seeing Richard Nixon behind the plate, and <laughs> and you know I just think like, and, and again this is this is '70s reality. People were taking this stuff. Like you know I think Bernie Carbo is the only other player who's admitted to uh, tripping on the field uh, during a major league game. But 
Uh, but you know, people were doing this stuff, and and if not acid, they were you know showing up the ballpark high, or they were showing up the ballpark drunk, or whatever. And and like to me, that's that's you know that is an important part of the picture as saying like, well, so and so showed up every day to to work, and you know <laughs> right. he was clean cut and, forget and a about, man's man. And forget all about Cal Ripken. Right. Let's, let's right. see you pitch. Let's right. see you pitch a no hitter on acid. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right, right. You can come to the ballpark every day, but can you can you do this? And so yeah. So that was number one. That had to go in there. And and I remember um, uh, Doc uh, died about a year before Big Hair and Plastic Grass finally came out. And, and you know, I was, um, you know, I, I, I really, I mean, that hit me really hard and also really made me wish that, well, I'd already decided that I wasn't going to talk to any, you know, I talked to a handful of players uh, while writing it, but just realized that, like, this is not the, you know, I don't have room to work in all their memories and in many cases their memories are faulty but i really wish i'd used it as an excuse to talk to doc ellis and i wish i'd used it as an excuse to talk to mark fidrich because they both died within i believe uh was it months of each other i mean it was it was and and these guys are really two of my all-time baseball heroes and it was just like man that was a missed opportunity well let's talk stars and strikes because 76 was the year that fidrich came on the scene and in very short order, really just kind of captured the imagination of uh, of the public. What was it about Mark Fidrich that was he just kind of like the right guy at the right moment in time? Uh, yes, yes, he was. Uh, but the, but there was more than that. I mean, I think he was he was very genuine. Like there was, you know, it's funny because I I was aware of Mark Fidrich before I think most people in America were because I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time. I was following the Tigers. And he, you know, word had started to, you know, seep out about this weirdo who was pitching for the Tigers. And he talks to the baseball and he he drops the mound, he manicures it and he shakes, you know, he's like super enthusiastic and all this. And, And of course, like me and my fellow 10 year old fourth graders at Burns Park School who are all, you know, cynical little bastards because we've <laughs> already lived through uh, through Watergate and our parents' divorces and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, we're just like, yeah, he's doing it for publicity. He's, he's, he's a faker. He's, he's, you know, this is, isn't the real deal. But, you know, within a month or so, we were all, I mean, I think it was the game against the Yankees that really convinced me. And, and that was the game that, uh, the Monday Night Baseball game that, America finally got to see him in action and really fell in love with him. And I mean, I think there was a genuineness about him that, that was really appealing. He was also kind of a freak. I mean, he had like the long hair and was gangly and <clears throat> definitely looked like, like he was like a guy who would go listen to the great, you know, go hang, go see a grateful dead show yeah, on absolutely. his off days and stuff like that. And <clears throat> so it was like, he, um, so, so he he definitely appealed to the more turned on uh, segment of baseball fandom, shall we say? Um, but also, like, I think if he had come up in ni- a year earlier and done the same thing, it wouldn't have had the same resonance because the backdrop that he's coming up, you know, he, he's coming coming up to the majors at a time where the reserve clause has just been struck down. There's all kinds of stuff in the papers and in the news about how 
<coughs> excuse me, about how players are, you know, they're not loyal to their teams. They want money. They're going to, um, you know, they're, you know, all these players that we've associated with these teams for all these years, they're all going to walk at the end of the season. Or, you know, in, in Boston, you had Fisk and Freddie Lynn holding out for, you know, better deals. And so all of a sudden it was, it was like this notion of playing for the love of the game and you're, you should just be happy to play a kid's game and, you know, make a living. Like that's all out the window and people are angry. And here's this guy who's playing for rookie salary, which is, you know, like at the time was like 19,000, you know, which even by today's standards, I mean, that's not bad. You're making, you know, that that's like... Uh, what, 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 that, that's like 75000 in today's money, which, you know, hey, uh, uh, nothing to sneeze at, but that's not major league anywhere what a right. major league rookie is making Right, and the, min- the minimum today is what? I think a little over a half million, yeah. I believe. Yeah, so, so and you got, you got scrubs sitting on the bench who are millionaires, you know, and it's... So here's this guy who's clearly just jazzed to be there, and he's... You know, he's freaking out because he's facing Hank Aaron and he strikes out Hank Aaron. I mean, it's Hank Aaron at the end of his career, but still like, whoa, dude, I just <laughs> struck out of Hank Aaron. So it's how any of us would have reacted, right? right? Exactly. It's so relatable. And and that's and, and that's why I came around too. It's like like seventy six is also the year that Bad News Bears comes out in the theaters, which was huge for me. I mean, that more than anything is what got me into baseball. It's like I went and saw it with my friends, and it's like here are these kids, and you never saw kids portrayed on the screen like that, you know. But like they're up there and they look and they sound and they talk and they swear like me and my friends do. Like, this is us. This is like, you know, this is like, you know, when people talk about the punk movement in, you know, in Britain and people going to see, you know, the Sex Pistols and and going like, that's me up there. You know, like this was for me with the Bad News Bears. Just, just the, the, um, um, the, um, uh, you know that that sense of recognition and and affirmation, like I exist because these guys are on screen doing this. So, Mark Fidrich to me was like a grown up bad news bear. Like he, you know, he could have been, you know, like Tanner, one of the, one of these guys who, are, but like they're grown up now and six foot two, and but they still have that goofiness and they still have that. I mean, he. You know, 76 is when I really started playing baseball. And when I walked out onto the diamond, like, I felt what what, he, what Mark Fidrich was doing on the mound, like, was just radiating the same joy that I felt when I walked out there. That same sense of, like, man, like, there's nowhere on else on earth I would rather be right now than right here. And this is just the best thing ever. And, and baseball rules. And, you know, let's, you know, play ball. So, uh, so I think that really came across to people, and then it coming across to people at a time when, you know, when when players are holding out for more money, you know, really across the board for the first time, you know, and there's going to be a full scale free agent draft at the end of the season, first ever. Like, so this is like messing with people's, uh, you know, long held vision of what baseball is about. But so, in a sense, Fidrich is a throwback. But in a sense, he's also like, you know, missed, you know, he, he is 
completely of the moment because he's this freak and you know and he you know he doesn't he doesn't have a car but if he did you'd know it would be a van you know and he shows up <laughs> yes he shows up to bag baseball banquets you know and in, in like you know jean jacket and and bell bottoms and and you know some polyester shirt and so it it just uh i, I really think he was uh it was the perfect timing for him and um uh, just really, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a shame what happened to his career, but at the same time, it's like you have, you know, like it, it was such a beautifully perfect year yes. that it's like almost like if he'd walked away at the end of the year, like he would be even more legendary than he right. is now because right. just like, you know, to come out of nowhere, to have your your first start in the middle of May to not really have your, you know, your second or third start till the end of the month. And yet you still finish with 19 wins, a league, league leading earned run average of, of two, three, four. He, he threw what, like 23 complete games. Yeah, I mean, like just, that. just, just nuts. And then, and just, uh, and, and that he transcended baseball. It wasn't just like, yeah, baseball fans loved him. I mean, like, People loved him, you know, people who didn't care about baseball loved Mark Fidrich. I mean, he was like, you know, I say the Stars and the Strikes, he was like like Peter Frampton and the Fonz rolled into one. It was just like, he was this cool guy and everybody, you know, he would play anywhere and, you know, and, and 10 to 20,000 more people would show up to watch him pitch. Right. Just because it was such an event. He was a folk hero. Like, you, you had to go see the bird. And you're right. There's something about something about he's 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 forever suspended in time in right. 1976. I mean, he lived another 30 plus years, but he's always going to be 23 or right. He, ever how old he, he was he, that summer? He never, <clears throat> excuse me, he never pitched another complete season. He, it was always you know there were several years of like you know the bird is back, and then he wasn't you know, and just like one one injury after another, and then. You know, I think the Tigers probably rushed him back too quickly in 77. And, and uh, you know, what most people forget was that, you know, his first injury, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, he threw too many innings in, in, in 76. Well, his first injury was a knee injury that he got while messing around, you know, like playing leapfrog <laughs> in the outfield during, uh, um, during spring training in 77. And then they rushed him back too quickly from him, from you know, uh, a surgery. And so, and that's when he starts messing up his arm and his shoulder is because he's changing his motion to, um, you know, to, to kind of what was Com compensate, compensate. That's it. Right. Compensate for the knee. So that's, that's what sets the whole domino effect in, in, in action. And, uh, you know, and, and there's talk like, well, you know, if he'd hung around the league for a while, would, People have gotten wise to his, you know, because because this was not a guy with an overpowering fastball like he was. But then again, it's like he, you know, might have gotten smarter about pitching. He might have, uh, you know, he, he, uh, uh, he, yeah. It's, it's it's like you know, we'll never know how it would have played out. But we do know that in 1976, you know, he had just a phenomenal season, and it's it's forever frozen in time. Well, stars and strikes, I think. Baseball aside, if you just want to read a good book about 
1976. Uh, you don't even have to be a baseball fan. Uh, you know, I think is an important distinction to make. You probably are a baseball fan if you're listening to this podcast. But uh, this is a now. Now I'm really promoting you. But this well, is thank a good, you. But this is a good. This is a good <laughs> gift for somebody in your family who's just interested in pop culture. Well, that that that's what I you know try to tell people. It's like you know the, the you know the, 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 there's every every chapter title in the uh in the book is uh taken from the name of a popular song in 1976 you know because i really you know to, to me as i wanted this book to be like a a time capsule or a time travel experience i i wanted to put you in the pod and take you back to what it was like and so for me, as a baseball fan in 1976, you know, I'm reading the sporting news, but I'm reading it with the AM radio on in the background, or I'm playing Stratomatic Baseball on, on the floor, but I'm doing it with the radio in the background. So music is part of, you know, and, and, I'm, re- and I'm reading the sports page, but then I'm turning to the movie section to see what's playing, and, you know, maybe I can convince my mom to, you know, take us to, to this film or that. And so it's, it's all part of the same experience and you know the fact that you've got uh um taxi driver at the beginning of the year and you've got rocky at the end of the year and like just like what a sea change right there that is showing in hollywood in just the general mental um you know attitude of americans in general it's like like you're going from anti-hero to hero like you you know and and by by the end of 76 like like okay we're done with watergate we're done with you know all this cynicism we're done with you know all this feeling bad about ourselves like we've spent the summer of 76 feeling good about ourselves celebrating our 200th birthday now let's feel good about ourselves in the theater let's you know let's uh, you know and and of course then this becomes like for good or ill this 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 need to feel good about ourselves leads to Ronald Reagan and everything that came <laughs> after it, but um, but yeah, it's it's like like I I, I wanted to I, I can't give you a mixtape to go or mixed CD to go with every copy of this book. I wish I could, but so titling the chapters by well known hits of the era that also you know the title may or may not have something to do with what's in the chapter. Um, like I, I want to put that bug in your head. I want you to hear that song in your head while you're reading this chapter. Uh, and, uh, so, so, so yeah, I want, I wanted it to be as immersive an experience as I can make it. What did you learn when you were writing this book? I mean, obviously you're going in with some, uh, some pretty strong historical knowledge about the 1970s, about 1976 in particular, but, what what was maybe surprising to you or or maybe crystallized in your mind in a different way as you uh put together this book well i think one of the things that i you know cuz again i'm coming back to 1976 with an idea in my mind that's largely formed by having lived through it at the age of 10 so there's a lot of things that were kind of below the surface that i was not aware of um uh, whether, like, I really did not understand, uh, as a kid, I really did not understand the whole free agent thing, the reserve clause, all that. And, you know, I mean, I understood that by the time I wrote it, Big Hair and Plastic Grass. But I really, until writing Stars and Strikes and researching it, I really didn't understand just how 
confused Major League Baseball's ownership was about the reserve clause, what it meant, what striking it down meant, what to do about it. Um, you know, I didn't really understand just how willing they were to cut their noses off to spite their face by like, I mean, there was this whole faction of hardline owners who were willing to just shut down baseball for 1976 until the players, uh, you know, recanted on their victory in court over the, uh, with the reserve clause. Just like, so like, okay, well, you won that. And these players, you know, Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally can, can you know, uh, be free agents. But like, this is not a precedent. This is not, you know, we're still going back to the old ways. And unless you agree to go back to the old ways, uh, we're, we're, you know, uh, we're closing down the sport for the for the year, and this is just insane. And and to me, like one, like I, I think Boa Kuhn, uh for the most part, was a clown and a terrible baseball commissioner. But one of the few good things, genuinely positive uh, moments in 1976 involving Bowie Kuhn was him going, you know what, this is nuts. We can't have the bicentennial celebrations and have no national pastime this is this is the absolute worst thing we can do so like you know we need to open up the spring training camps and you know get to the negotiation with marvin miller get get back to the table figure out what the collective bargaining agreement is going to be from here on out but like we have to play baseball and uh you know i had no idea until i started researching stars and strikes that that there were so many owners who were just completely willing to like go down with the ship on this because they were so pissed that like this was not going to be the way it was and and i also i i don't think i really understood just how ironic it was that bill veck comes in at this moment because this is a you know this is at a you know go back five years or five six years earlier when Kurt Flood is filing suit against Major League Baseball uh, over the reserve clause, uh, uh, really no no current players stood up for him. They were all afraid that they were biting that by doing so would be biting the hand that fed them. Bill Veck, who was out of baseball at this time, was one of the few uh, people who actually stood up in court for Kurt Flood and said, you know, this is, this is something that ownership is going to have to accept that like players, like there's going to, I forget the exact phrase he used, but like they, they are, they want to have more control over their career and they, you know, they've earned that and they deserve that. So Veck buys the White Sox for the second time in December of 75 within weeks of buying the team word comes that the reserve clause has been, you know, has been struck down by an arbitrator or, or you know, that, that, that an arbitrator has declared Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally free agents. And this is the decision that will lead to the reserve clause being struck down. So this thing that Bill Veck, because he was a stand-up guy, uh, knew was morally right is also the thing that is going to completely ruin Bill Veck as a baseball owner, because he's he, like he, he he's just bought this terrible team, and he has he does not have deep pockets, and he and because all these players are now going to leave, like he has no way of luring you know these star players to the team because he can't pay them. So it's it's sort of like like he's in a way has cut his own throat 
five years in advance. Although, right. you know, he certainly understood that this was this was how it had to be. So, so that 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 struck me really, uh, really um, strongly. I mean, there's, there's so much. There's there, there's you know whether it was the the bicentennial celebrations in Philadelphia being kind of uh, not ruined, but a lot of the luster was taken off because there were all these rumors that because there were all these underground movements that were you know were planning to stage a protest in Philadelphia on the Fourth of July weekend and you know it was everything from you know the, the American Indian uh, you know, Native American groups to you know you know remaining left wing radicals to you know all the all this stuff and. You know, and 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 really understanding that, like, well, on a superficial level, like the bicentennial was a really positive time and a really positive experience for a lot of Americans. For a whole lot of Americans uh, who were disenfranchised, uh, meaning you know people who were not white, uh, the, the bicentennial was really kind of uh, you know at best a mixed bag because this is you're celebrating 200 years of American. You know history, and a lot of that history was not so kind to people who were not white and people who were not uh, um, Christian, and and uh, you know people who were immigrants came here, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, seeking freedom from other uh, from oppression in other countries, only to find uh, uh, oppression of a different sort uh, here, and uh, so so that really. Uh, that that struck me as well, and and I mean it. it uh, I, I think this uh, bicentennial was such a, a a wonderful time in a way, and it was a really you know throwing off the you know the bummer that had been America, you know for you know the Nixon era, the bummer of the Nixon era, and, and voting for it out of office at the end of the year was like the final, you know, what we thought at the time was the final nail in the coffin of, you know, of, of Nixon and his legacy. Uh, little did we know uh, that, that all these guys would, 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 you know, come back like zombies, um, uh, of Nixon aside. Um, so it, uh, it, it's, it, it's, I mean, I think like anything, you, 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 anything in history, you go back and you look at something that looks really cool to you and looks on the surface, like a really positive thing. And then you delve below the surface and you see how complex it is. And, and, um, you know, the, there's not enough room in this book to really get deep into the analysis of all of this stuff, but it just had to kind of throw it in there and throw it out there. Like, like, you know, and 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 even stuff like the Baltimore bicentennial plan, where they they decide to get like the biggest birthday cake ever made <laughs> to celebrate, and it just becomes this complete fiasco where the city of Baltimore loses all this money on it and becomes overrun by rats. And oh. It's 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 like 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 to me like that now is maybe more emblematic of the bicentennial <laughs> than it would have been before I started writing this book. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'm I'm going to put you on the spot because I remember in '76. There were no rats involved, but I remember as a little five-year-old kid in 76, my birthday cake was a, an American flag. Sweet. So, you know, I'm sure I wasn't alone. No, no. Like, uh, and, 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 and that, you know, and like in like Ann Arbor, where I grew up, which was a pretty, you know, as, as cities in Michigan went, I mean, it was fairly radical uh, politically. And, uh, I mean, you could smoke pot in public and get only a $10 fine in right. the mid-70s. 
Uh, but every, you know, it was like every fire hydrant in my neighborhood was painted red, white, and blue ever, you know, and, and it was cool and people yeah. were into it. You know, it was like, you could, you could be into that and not be, you know, cause Nixon was no longer in the white house and we were no longer in Vietnam. It was like this moment where we can go like, you know what? Uh, when I say in the book, it's like we were embracing our inner Ben Franklin as opposed to our inner John Wayne. And right. it's like, like, yeah, like, like, hey, like a lot about this experiment was pretty cool, is pretty cool. Let's celebrate it. And we don't have to have this baggage. Now, again, as I said, it's easier for some of us to throw off this baggage and than it was for others. Let me put you on the spot here as we uh, get towards the end of this. If I were asking for the Dan Epstein Mount Rushmore of 1970s baseball... Mm, well, who gets the call? Okay, it is. Uh, I'm gonna say Doc Ellis, Mark Fidrich, Oscar Gamble, and number four uh, would have to be. I guess Bill Lee. Yeah, the spaceman. Yeah, I think, I that's think that, a good. That, call. I think that's a nice combination. That's a good call. Guys. Somebody needs to get on that project. Yeah, let's find, <laughs> let's find some, find a mountain somewhere and, and go to go to town. Or, or just just like have one of those machines that like like I don't know if they even still have them anymore, but like used to get at museums where like it would make like a wax figure. <laughs> yes. So like a wax Mount Rushmore yes. with with you know Doc Doc in the cornrows. Um, uh, Oscar with a huge fro, um, uh, Mark Fidrich blowing a blowing a bubblegum bubble, and then Billy probably you know smoking a joint. <laughs> <I think> they, <laughs> what else could it possibly yeah, mean? Yeah, let's get All on. Right, that. I'll tell you right now, I would put that on my mantle. Exactly. If I had that, I'm not alone. <laughs> Me too. I'm telling you right now. All we need is some licensing rights, exactly. and we can go to town. Well, the book is Stars and Strikes: Baseball in America in the Bicentennial Summer of '76. It's available now in paperback. You need to go out and get this book if you don't already own it. Make sure when you get this book that you set aside a few hours for yourself because you may not be able to put it down. All right, thank you, Dan Epstein. You are the godfather of 1970s oh, baseball. I appreciate it so much. Ricky, Thanks for coming on. Absolute pleasure, man. You've got an open invitation. I'd love to have you back on sometime. Cool. All right, my friend. And so there you have it. Dan Epstein. And I really have to give a tip of the cap and a nod of the head in Dan's direction uh, because Super 70 Sports quite likely would not exist were it not for his influence. Seeing what Dan did with these books and the, the spirit of humor and uh, irreverent wit and the way that Dan tied the uh, sports into the broader social culture of the time I just thought was amazing and it really inspired me. So if you like what I do, uh, you can credit Dan Epstein. If you don't like what I do, then you can blame Dan Epstein. Sorry, Dan. Uh, my guest next week is Jeff Katz, author of Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. Jeff, actually also, interestingly enough, is the mayor of Cooperstown, New York. So maybe I can work some connections with Jeff and see if I can't meet some of these legendary players. I mean, a guy's got to try, right? I'm Ricky Cobb. Join me next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. And there's nothing wrong with that, Paul McCartney. See you next time.